0: You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a music discovery podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and artists from around the world. My name is Zach Lubiton. This month, The Show on the Road is sponsored by Winter Wondergrass, now with three unique festival locations. In Steamboat, Colorado, February 21st through 23rd, Lake Tahoe's beautiful Squaw Valley, California, March 27th through 29th, and now Stratton Resort, Vermont, for the second annual Sugar and Strings Fest, April 10th and 11th. Who throws a music festival under the stars in the middle of winter, you ask? Why, Winter Wondergrass, of course. These are the most unique festivals I've ever been a part of. I played them in Lake Tahoe and in Colorado. And you know what? Just because you're wearing snow pants doesn't mean you can't dance. And it is really, really fun, guys. Single and multi-day passes for Winter Wondergrass are available now. Head over to winterwondergrass.com for more. This week on the show, my conversation with a revered singing songstress and deeply wise wordsmith, who has released over 13 albums over a quarter century as one of America's touchstone folk poets. First bursting out of the famed Lilith Fair folk rock scene with contemporaries like Andy DeFranco and the Indigo Girls, she has inspired generations of women to fearlessly embrace their creativity and exercise their limitless potential, Dar Williams. I want you to step back for a second and think about the neighborhood where you live. Why did you move there? What makes your neighborhood special? What makes it unique? Maybe it's that dusty bar with the long shuffleboard table that's always been there, or maybe it's the new coffee shop that just opened on the corner, or maybe it's that Chinese restaurant that has only two stars on Yelp, but they still deliver piping hot wonton soup, and it's still amazing every time. Every neighborhood has that special thing. Until it doesn't. Slowly, Neighborhoods, towns, even entire cities start to become the same. And the thing that really sticks out about my neighborhood, it's McCabe's Guitar Shop. Sure, we have the strip malls with Baskin Robbins and Yoshinoya, but we also have the guitar shop that's been open for 50 years, that had Jackson Brown and the Blind Boys of Alabama and Taj Mahal and Del McCurry and Tom Waits and Linda Ronstadt and Lucinda Williams sitting in the green room where I interviewed Dar Williams last week. And I kind of wish every neighborhood could have a McCabe's guitar shop, a place where people from far and wide can come and share their stories. And much like this well-worn room that we recorded in, Dar Williams has so much history and knowledge coursing through her. And sure, Williams has headlined festivals and concert series in theaters around the world for 20 years, but it's nights like these that intrigue me most. In these little guitar shop venues in a little suburb where people are gathered on the misty sidewalks for hours, clutching sandwiches and their dog-eared albums, discussing her verbosely visceral songs like Iowa Traveling Part 3 or The Beauty of the Train, like Collector Kids talking about their glossy tomes that house the adventures of their comic heroes, and maybe Dar Williams can be a new kind of hero, the one that doesn't show up on the Grammy red carpet in Vera Wang and Gucci. She's a working class folk music hero. She has seen and weathered the whole upheaval of the music industry firsthand. And though she'd put in the time and the miles and toured with Joan Baez and Patty Griffin, she then lost half of her record sales when the streaming revolution arrived, and then lost half of that. And unlike most of us who don't dare talk about the economics of the industry, Dar Williams is fearless and talks about it openly. Because you have to be resilient and you have to be creative nowadays. And she's rebounded by becoming a guide to other hopeful songwriters, creating writing retreats, becoming an author and an urban renewal specialist with her beautiful book, What I Found in a Thousand Towns, a traveling musician's guide to rebuilding America's communities, one coffee shop, dog run, and open mic at a time. And of course, this brings me back to my neighborhood and this little beacon that McCabe's guitar shop is. We need places like this in our neighborhoods all over the country. Because once it's gone, what do we have? The bar, the coffee shop, the Chinese place, it's not enough. It's not enough to make this town special. And I had a dream a couple nights ago that if McCabe's ever went under, if they had a for sale sign on there, I might have to get money together and buy it myself. But that's enough pipe dreaming for me. Before we talk to Dar Williams, I want to tell you that January 31st, My band, Dust Bowl Revival, will be releasing our brand new record, Is It You, Is It Me? We have an insane single out. It's called Dreaming. We just put it into the world. I hope you can listen to it. We have double violet vinyl that just went on sale, and the record release shows start January 29th in Boston. We'll see you out there, everybody. Do me a favor. Go support your local music venue. They need you. You need to keep these places alive before they're gone. And now, without further ado, my conversation with the one and only... Williams.
1: Lord, there goes Johnny Apple Sea. He might pass by in the hour of me. There's a lot of souls. Hey, After getting the honey Then you don't go Killing all the bees
2: uh, This is Dar Williams I'm from Hudson uh, Valley, New York And I'm a singer-songwriter
0: It says online that you grew up I think kind of right where my dad was at In, uh, in Chappaqua
2: mm-hmm.
0: My dad was in Osning. Mm-hmm Grandma's still there, working five days a week at the lung specialist. She, like, runs the office, 93 years old. Oh, fantastic. Wow. Did you have a relationship with your grandmothers?
2: I had a relationship with both of them. I uh, I knew all my grandparents, um, and uh, the first one died uh, when I was about 21, and the last one died when I was 41. So... um And uh, we all, they were all very different from each other. It was great.
0: What was the grandmotherly advice that you can remember that came from her, if any?
2: That's a really good question. I think that they um, just sort of modeled (laughs) who they were and how they lived. I mean, they were just very, um, the grandmothers were very wise, you know, in that way that um, they'd seen things and they had more of a, a sort of a breadth of, Understanding of human nature than you might have given them credit for. <laughs> well, they and like the,
0: my grandmothers who are God bless them still going strong.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Though you know realistically, mm-hmm. this may be the last few years I'll have with them. It's like these are the last people that have seen both the Roaring Twenties and the Twenties that we just entered. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they you know went through the Great Depression and you know. World War Too, and Mm -hmm. it's like these people hold so much history you know
2: they were yes but you know what's great is that there's this kind of goes around comes around they've seen it all and then there's this sort of timeless quality to that for instance I was watching the Tracy Ullman show with my dad's mom yeah and she said well (laughs) she's in Virginia she said oh I love this, this one this is she's she's a she pretends to be a 15-year-old girl, and she has two fathers. And I said, how do you feel about that, Mama? And she said, what? That, oh, oh. Well, when we lived in Chappaqua, yeah. she said, David and Fred, you know, they were they were together, and they lived at the bottom of Big Drive, where we lived. And, and David just, you know, drove his, his partner down to the train station, just like all the wives. Right. <laughs> and she was like... Oh yeah, you know. There's this has always been. There've always been gay couples. There's we've always lived in a world that has all of these things. This is not new for me. Right. And that was kind of a an education uh, for me. You know, she she was like, don't don't think that any of this stuff that you think is so new is, is new to me.
0: Well, the conversation uh, my wife was having with my folks who are in town. They all went and saw Lady uh, Little Women last night mm. about the character Joe, who's like a tomboy sort of you know, mm-hmm. who is in my Alcott's
2: alter ego, alter
0: yeah. ego and she doesn't want to marry and she wants to work and create and that was enough for her. Mm-hmm. And and they did a really beautiful job of flipping that conflict on its head and saying, like, okay, I'll have her marry but mm-hmm. it's not because I want to, it's just because I want this book to be made
1: mm-hmm. and to
0: be read. And it was like more important to have her words out there and she kept her copyright.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, which was probably pretty damn rare. And you grew up with two sisters, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Was it like Little Women in your house?
2: Well, uh, you know, <laughs> I watched... Um, I was I was at a friend's house, and they, they get screeners, you know, yeah. of movies. So we, we only watched half because we were doing something. We were only able to watch half the movie. And... Um, of the re- recent one, and there's this kind of a scene where <laughs> all the, the sisters kind of do this pylon, you know, and it right. kind of shows this again a kind of a timeless um, sisterliness that's all kind of rough and tumble and horseplay. Right. And I was like, oh, that's not accurate because when my sisters and I fought like that, yeah, it was to kill, like it was to or to so that we could do the most damage without actually doing permanent damage. Who was the alpha? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, not me. I mean, I would say I was kind of split between my sisters. Um, they were both um, they were both really smart and really devious. And so we, uh, you know, it was just, when it's an all-girl household, that's a really interesting thing because we all, like, Julie drove the tractor and Meredith was the math whiz and I was, like, the monkey who wasn't afraid of looking like a nut. And it was... Um, you know, when you don't have brothers, you take on a lot of different roles that you might not have if, if you'd had dudes around. Um, I think now, as a, as a mother of a daughter and a son, gender's just a looser thing. So mm. people can take on all of their different roles. Um, but, you know, being raised by a, a mom who got married five days after college and mm. didn't go back to work until I was 11, her youngest child she might have treated a, a boy differently, and, and instead she had three daughters who were kind of feral. <laughs> so that's kind of maybe like the little women scenario.
0: And your parents were very supportive of you from a you know, very young age, and you were very creative. You started yeah. playing around 10?
2: hmm hmm My parents were um, that, that kind of uh, crowd. I mean, suburbs of New York City, but not really fancy at the time. And so, kind of Lucy, loosey, Lucy Goosey, surrounded by a bunch of hippies. They weren't hippies, but um, it was a good. Uh, everything happened in a good way for me, because the seventies, with all of the "Free to Be You and Me" and and the sort of gender breakdowns, influenced my parents enough that they really wanted my sisters and I to to s- go to the horizons that were appropriate for us and. Um, that was a real breaking down of of stuff that wasn't really the world that they had been in. I really admire them for that. Like, I don't think that they encouraged themselves to be as mm. kind of far out <laughs> as I was. It's a wonderful thing when our you know. parents believe in us. I mean, I lead a songwriting retreat, and, like, so much of talking to people about songwriting is is about just getting the discouraging voices out of your head or being in some conversation like, yeah, I'm sure the song really is too short and I'm sure this is really derivative and I'm sure this is a ridiculous song, but you know I'm going to write it anyway. So, you know, it's it's hard enough to have that conversation in your head. Mm. The idea that you're pushing against a parent who has been belittling you and kind of knows your, your spots, knows where to push to do the most damage, seems really would I'd possibly be impossible for me. I would probably have actually, and you too maybe, you know, not really had a choice, uh, ultimately pushed back um, against dis- that kind of discouragement. Because I don't, I think this is probably what I was supposed to do. So, um, uh, I probably would have pushed back. And there are some very well-known artists who have notoriously unsupportive parents. Of course. But I think they really suffered for that. I don't yeah. think that was like, that's why I was able to, you know, be an artist because I forged myself in the crucible of disapproval. I think it sucked.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's like the, you know, the idea that you write some of your best work under veils of sorrow and pain. Yeah. And (laughs) oftentimes it's like when you actually are in a happy relationship finally, or something that is really working out where all this stuff can kind of bubble to the surface that you didn't have time or energy to really look at when you were in deep darkness you know yeah
2: it's a real I mean people forget that when you're really depressed there's a form it's a form of paralysis so yeah I agree I mean what's nice for me and my friends is when it's maybe not all the way emotionally digested so there's still emotion there as you write about it but you know that you know this relationship reminded you of a bird flying away and this relationship reminded you of being in a cave or, you Mm. know, you've gotten to the place where you can turn it into a metaphor that's kind of exciting and interesting as well as having that kind of aerated emotional thing too. Like that's kind of the ideal, but yes, totally. I have to be in a very safe, in fact, if I'm at a cafe and there's like a mean barista and yeah. I come to that cafe like to sit down and like you can have music and the speakers and I can still pretty much work out some lyrics. But if the barista is like that way, it takes me a little while <laughs>
0: to k- kind of surface from that, let alone, you know. Yeah, the bad energies Bad juju is. Swirling uh, through the brainwaves. That's
2: the thing. And I think the artists that I've spoken with share that like, yeah, hit me with a bad vibe and it's not. It's going to be harder for me to create, so it just takes away that springiness. I think people who who write songs have dismantled that idea that being depressed is is the best, uh, you know, state of being. Although people I know say that that works for them, I, it really is interesting. Yeah.
0: I don't know how. I have this problem where many times a song will come when I have to leave the house in like five minutes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> You're like, okay, I really yeah. got to go to beat traffic oh my God, though, this, oh my God, here it is. And oftentimes it happens in the shower. Mm-hmm, so I'm mm-hmm. showering, getting cleaned up really quick. Yeah. There's something about the, the rushing of the water and the, the release of maybe re- your your brain's relaxing for the first time all day. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're like, oh no, no, I, gotta, I yeah. got this thing and I have to drive.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: And then you are kind of doing it in the car with one hand on the wheel, one hand's trying to get your voice memos up.
2: Absolutely. No, it was, uh, that's, uh, you know, because striking when the iron's hot is lovely. Like, when I wake up, a lot of times I've woken up with a little piece of melody from a dream. And um, that's where it starts. And, you know, you got to get the kids off to school. <laughs> but um, I, uh, I've been lucky. And hopefully you have, too. You know, I will actually have, I woke up from a dream with a little piece of melody and it was the after my kids had gone to school and I'd gone back to sleep and then woken up mm. after that moment. So it was just me making a cup of tea, working out where this melody would go. And I had an hour to just mm. really see where it was going. And
0: uh, what song was that?
2: Um, it's a song that's called um, "Magical Thinking," and um, it's not quite done yet. But mm. it's it's um, so uh, all I had was this melody that went
1: da 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 da
2: and that's it it was very and i knew it was minor key and you i tell people when they're writing songs like just take the clues that you have okay it's not a waltz it's 4/4 time and and i just was and uh and so i just kept on building around those two lines slowly carefully and it the third line was da 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 like and i and it was magical thinking that i thought oh yeah that's a, because that's a very resonant theme you know all the magical thinking that we do in a day you know when we know something is toast and it's not going to work out but we have this kind of magical thinking like if i get home and i the gas tank doesn't hit empty <laughs> then that means that everything's going to work out. And so I started to build around that. And, you know, like an hour later, actually had a verse and a chorus. And
0: Do you sing and write words first before you bring the guitar or an instrument in?
2: Yeah. I think that, um, you know, as Paul Simon says, you know, people say, oh, I have a melody in my head or I have words in my head. The greatest thing is when there's some simultaneous words in music and you have a little phrase and then what i do is i'll have that phrase like magical thinking or i have a song called if i wrote you um have a song called what do you hear in these sounds um and i have that phrase and then i'm like who who is this about what's this about and i sort of do this humming and and syllable thing around that phrase until i go oh okay this is where like, I kind of let it be a mystery, and then I sit down with a guitar, and...
0: Yeah, you know what? Listening to your stuff the last few days, it reminded me, and you may think I'm crazy, of some of the lyrics that Bernie Taupin does with Melton John. <laughs> because there's such a poetic uh, disregard for the chord structure at times, it's because mm-hmm. he's taking these words that are formed mm-hmm. beyond what Elton John could even conceive you know, on piano right away, because he's not thinking about it yet.
2: No, he's just a there, lyric, It's a dude.
0: separate brain, right? Yeah, yeah. And then Elton John takes it, and I'm reading his, his autobiography right now, and it's kind of blowing my mind. And he literally in 10 minutes goes, okay, blue jean baby.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm.
0: But he has these songs that are now like indelible hits mm-hmm. that don't have rhyme schemes. Oh, I know. Or like choruses... <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, that don't have traditional hooks at all. And yet we sing them
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm.
0: we know how that goes. And there's songs of yours that I feel like the words are leading the the way. Yeah,
2: you're right. That, I think that's a really, really good way of, of um, looking at it. I do. I mean, generally, I think it's it's important to... Pay attention to the musical structure, Um, and at the same time, what I've discovered, you know, sometimes what I there's this thing I call the voice of the song. So it's like, is this a song that's going to be loose and conversational? Is this going to have tight rhymes? Is this going to have tight structure? Is it going to be symmetrical? Is it going to be asymmetrical? You know, what rules do I want to break to make it more interesting? And um, you know, what does the song want? What is the world and voice of this song? And I follow that. And that is, you know, so now that I'm helping people as they're writing their songs, I find that it to say a good song has, you know, this kind of rhyming structure. This, It's like, no, it's every song makes its own demands of what it wants from you. And I call that the voice of the song. So we start there. You know, it's interesting helping other people write songs after I didn't really understand how I wrote songs so and I, it's really fun just to say, okay, look, this, this person is not a big rhymer, okay? <laughs> yeah. Like, I have a song called Buzzer, and it's, like, a person who's got, who's really uptight and in a rush, and it doesn't rhyme very well because she's in a rush. She doesn't have time to rhyme.
0: There's a song off your uh, latest release, which is uh, Emerald,
2: mm-hmm.
0: called Empty Plane, which I mm-hmm. played over and over again the last few days for some reason. There's a couple lines specifically that really hit me, I think, as... Mm -hmm. Someone who is on the road and trying to figure themselves out and trying to find the goodness in that. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: uh, I leave for a living, right? And you begin every time you fly sitting at the gate by a door to the sky, Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. which is
0: so cool, right? Because the idea of being able to sort of refresh yourself by telling your stories in a new place to new people, Mm -hmm. right? Because a song that could bomb here at McCabe's guitar shop in in LA, which it probably won't. It's a pretty friendly crowd here. (laughs) Tomorrow in San Diego could be like the greatest thing anyone's ever heard, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they always say traveling changes your perspective. It makes you less racist. It makes you more empathetic, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Because we have to know... That there's so many other people not like us,
2: mm-hmm. you
0: know, oh, but yes. they are like us when it comes down to it. Almost, you I know? think,
2: yeah. There's a whole sort of vibrational thing because, because I think we do kind of have to gather up the positive vibrations around us. Is there's a kind of a different way I think that artists go around the world? Is kind of like, is this is this kind of humming with me or is yeah. this not humming with me? Is this, and um, you know, we're. Where's their, uh, you know, where are their open hands instead of tight fists? Where is there uh, a, a door that says welcome as opposed to we have no bathrooms, you yeah. know? And, um, so I, uh, and actually I wrote a book that's called what I found in a thousand towns about different towns and how they, hmm. um, have created themselves from kind of nothing. Cause that's when they, where they were when I would first start playing there. And now they're sort of these big, fancy towns and, when I talked to other musicians about this book that I was writing, like a lot of people are like, what are you writing about? I'm like, well, it's kind of like social capital based urban planning. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's how people take that bank account of goodwill and turn it into downtowns and mm. quality of living and good schools and good libraries. A lot of musicians were like, Oh yeah, I know that thing. Mm. I know that, that thing where people kind of have a way of vibing with each other that, Allows them to do good stuff instead of just living behind their walls like barricades with Mm -hmm. distrust. And um, so, yes, I leave for a living and I go out and I kind of see how people are balancing themselves against, you know, the elements and each other and, you know, how things are working socially and I thought maybe that's just another part of my brain that's not like other musicians. But most musicians are like, oh yeah, I know that thing. Like mm-hmm. Moab, you know, Moab, Utah, is so it's got that thing. Or yeah. Bisbee has that thing, and and you name another town, and I won't name. I would it. say
0: Prescott, Arizona, for me always has that that. Special I haven't vibe. been to Prescott. Oh my God, so that's you great. Love it.
2: So you know, and like I feel it. I feel it in Mesa, but I don't feel it in Tempe. Or I feel yeah. it in Tempe, I don't feel like Mesa. So. Um, I mean, most places that have music have that thing, but they're like, I don't know what it's called, but Mm. it's that thing. And yeah, we, um, it's a, it's a nice, um, empty plane is, is, uh, I, I woke up from a dream and it it was, you know, so I walked onto, so I walked onto an empty plane Mm. and I thought, what would that be like? Mm. You know, that would that would probably be a one-way trip <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> away from the planet. You know, like if you were suddenly on a plane and everybody's really friendly and it's like a really different day from other days in your life and you're the only person on the plane, mm. that's probably, you're not exactly on a an actual plane. Yeah. And so I was thinking through that and thinking what it has been to be a traveler, mm. you know, for a living. And, and how much I love my kids, but how I bring the world back to them I couldn't be the mom I am Mm. if I couldn't do what I do and we'll figure out in the future if that's (laughs) excusable (laughs) I leave for a living
1: that's what we all do and I say that I'm missing the ones that I'm leaving and I always do truth is that you begin again every time you fly There's peace in the airport Sitting at a gate by a door to the sky So it's hard, but it's not hard Fumble for your ID, credit card But then I walked on to But then I walked on to I
2: walked onto an empty Do you Damn. think
0: your songwriting changed when you became a mom?
2: No, I was really freaked out when people are like, "So now that you're a mother, how is it different?" I was like, "Not. It's I'm not sorry different." If that
0: question was offensive.
2: Oh no, no, it's not offensive. No, I think it's a really good question because I think it's it's something to uh, unpackage. I mean, some people because it does change for some people. But, you know, the whole, like, I never, you know, I really started to care about climate change because I had children. I was like, I've always cared about <laughs> climate change. Are you kidding? And, yeah. like, I started to care about things because I, and it's like, what, didn't you care about other children <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> before you had kids? I mean, I had kids because I like children. Yeah. So, so um, I was, I was actually shocked at how little I changed at all. Mm. And. And yet, something does change when you become a parent. I think it's sort of there's two worlds. Like our performer life, you're like, what am I gonna wear? What am I gonna look like? There's a, a performative,
1: mm-hmm.
2: presentational aspect to it, and you're always kind of fighting, you know, where you're feeling a little dragged down. Whereas kids expect you to be kind of dragged down and tired, and like, <laughs> you know, well, they, they just
0: know you as mom. Like, yeah, they know. kind
2: of they kind of res- they kind of like that heaviness, you mm. know, that kind of doughy. Like reliable, predictable, not too glam kind of thing. Like that's what they—that's what you're supposed to be because you're old to them. (laughs) And um, and I like I like actually kind of being a slower, more predictable. Like my my son wanted to do something recently. I'm like, no way! And he goes, wait a minute. All other parents let their kids do this. Like I can't believe that you're like such a such a nudge. And I was like, oh my god. I'm a nudge, like I'm one of I'm a bad like, yeah. not you know restrictive. I'm parent. square. Yeah, I'm square. Like, thank you. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm not used to feeling that way.
0: And you you adopted mm-hmm. one of your children from Ethiopia. You mentioned
2: yes, yes. She's she's the light of the household, and um, well, it's a whole you know it's it's a it's a great it's a great world. To the, my kids are um, really different from each other. And um, and yet they have a similar sense of humor. So this sort of balance of nature versus nurture, they have this thing What's in What's the age difference? Five years. Mm. Um, they have a thing in common to the point where you're not really sure what is a biological thing and mm. what is, is a, a nurture thing. Mm. So um, it's, it's certainly, there's a simpatico feel.
0: I have a friend who's actually flying to Ethiopia right now mm. with her daughter, I believe, to sort of go on this spiritual journey. Mm. Do, have you ever been over there?
2: No, uh, my ex-husband went to mm. to um, pick up uh, our daughter because um, we were going to go together, but it was um, it was not clear. I would have to clear my booking schedule for six months,
1: mm.
2: and I said, you know, I really I'm losing like a year of income because we yeah. couldn't. And I said, I have a controversial thing to say what if you went with a friend and not with me mm. and so um my husband went with his best friend and um i'm sure in ethiopia they showed up with their like matching metrosexual glasses <laughs> and i'm sure in ethiopia they thought all right your quote unquote wife is in the united states but <laughs> but i was and um it was um it was incredible to hear he had almost um a birth type experience, Mm. an intense, uh, you know, traditional mother child experience with my daughter because it was just him Mm. and her. And they give you this child and you,
0: she was a baby. Yeah. She was six
2: months and they, she's put in a, in this bed next to your bed and you just wake up looking at each other. Mm. And it was just the two of them. And she weighed 13 pounds and even at six months. And so they had a bond that they might not have had if I were, Mm. um, along for the ride although I'm, I'm sorry and some say she and I will go to, mm. to Ethiopia
0: let's go back a little bit so you moved to Boston and you actually were in, in the theater right
2: I worked at the opera company of Boston yeah. and I was writing plays yeah so I did yes those two things were
0: happening do you find like you find that your songs often have a theatrical conversation going on because I'm definitely mm-hmm. feeling that sometimes.
2: <laughs> um, you know, I was a theater major in college, and I and I
0: weren't we all,
2: <laughs> and it was great to have a person say something like, What is this really about? You know, mm-hmm. what's the real conflict here? Yeah. And, um, the um, like I have a song that uh, the song Emerald it says, uh, I was you know, I'm, I'm driving on the highway and there's someone who's going so fast. I can, you know, there's a girl that's passing me. She's going so fast. I can hardly tell it's me. So it's this, like my past self is trying to pass my present self. And I'm looking at her just rushing Mm -hmm. away to just try to figure out her life. And I wish that I could just explain to her that everything's going to work out. She doesn't have to freak out and go Mm -hmm. so fast. And that was a theatrical thing that I learned from, uh, a professor who talked about casting these two women, one as an older self and one as a younger self in an opera, and how they're always kind of revolving around each other. And, and there's this incredible moment, you know, near the end where they stop and they turn and they look at each other. Mm-hmm. They see each other.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And just him, and you don't know why that's so cool, but it just gives you those goosebumps. And I thought, hmm, you know, so you can do so many things with narrative that are interesting. When you're on a stage, it's all yours. You can decide if, if people are floating or people, <laughs> if the dead are living and the living are dead and and that freedom. And yet that sort of, but it's gotta be interesting. Mm. <laughs> you know, narrative has to have a function was, was a great gift from the theater. And also people have their voices, you know, they have their own truth and they express it through mm. their vernacular or their formal or their you know, the way they BS or um, that was theater was good for songwriting.
0: I think I think it's essential to have some of that instilled in your brain, especially when you're young, because it's not like you can go and major in songwriting. You
2: know, <laughs> There's it, a school that's going to start in Texas that I believe you can have a songwriting major. All right. Let's
0: say you start mm-hmm. a small college. Mm-hmm. You could have five professors of songwriting. Mm hmm who would you employ? Money is no object. <laughs> uh,
2: that's good. Um, you know, I I attended Steve Earle's uh, Camp Copperhead, mm. and um, I was teaching just the songwriting part, mm. but I attended his stuff in the morning, mm-hmm. and I really loved, he's like a train. I mean, he just has so much to say, and he really is a great communicator, so you just feel like something's come barreling through your your psyche. Um, and I loved it. Um, so yeah. So Steve Steve, number one, you know, Leonard Cohen, we'd have to bring him back. Okay. Bring him back. But you know, um, and you know, Bill Morrissey, he died, I don't know, probably eight years ago. Uh, and, and he was an amazing writer. He was part of the folk scene and he, was also extremely, I, he did this huge article about how he writes songs. And I was feeling that thing in my solar plexus, like, wow, yeah, I should write songs like this. I should write song. Yeah, maybe that's how you write a successful song. And then at the very end of the interview, he said, but that's how I write songs. That's not how everybody writes songs. And I'm not telling anybody that that's the way yeah. they should do it. And, and it was like my whole midsection just released, because mm. the love with which he said, this works for me, but it's not the way other people do it. Mm. I thought, you know, so I'd have him be a professor because he would bring both the clarity of what works for him and the compassion mm. of that not being. Um, so so we'd have Bill.
1: okay,
2: um, And, gosh, there's so many great songwriting friends. My friend Nerissa Nields and I, of the Nields, um, mm. have a lot of, great conversations about songwriting and writing mm. and patience. I would just want people like that who are sort of midwives mm. uh, and mid husbands. <laughs> mm. I mean, I, the people that I work with, um, are probably my fa- my, my friend, Raquel Vidal and Rick Gedney and Michelle Gedney, the, I work with them. Mm. And, um, we are a simpatico. You want people who really respect mm. the privacy, of that, so, and yet, who? of course I'd want Steve, and of course I'd want Leonard, and of course, <laughs> of course I'd want, you know, those people who inspired me.
0: There's an amazing uh, Atlantic Magazine uh, cover story, I think from four or five years ago, about the sort of science of genius, mm. and they had this whole analysis of Paul McCartney and John Lennon as mm. this perfect yin-yang that would balance each other out. It
2: did seem to be a yin-yang. You know,
0: and they had, because... And, they, and that the, the early sort of love songs and the heartfelt, earnest mm-hmm. uh, side came from Paul and John had the sort of darkness and the honesty and the raw mm-hmm. pain. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then it kind of reversed later on where John mm-hmm. became kind of about peace and love and... And wow. you know uh, spirituality, and Paul was going helter skelter, and he was going into his own darkness, and then they sort of flipped, and still mm-hmm. We're balanced still in each the yin other yang yang. Yeah. yeah,
2: that's that's a that's really cool. I think I tend to look at those kind of forces more than sort of what is genius, because yeah. I mean I don't know about about Dust Bowl revival, but you know I came up in the mid '90s when it was Lilith Fair mm-hmm. and. Michigan women's music festival and girls with guitars and mm-hmm. internet was just on the rise and folk music was coming back. And I was kind of riding on Annie's um, mm-hmm. coattails, you know, mm-hmm. Annie DeFranco came up and, and paved this whole, I say mm-hmm. she brought the scream back to acoustic music and, and I was able to kind of get right in there. And, um, it was perfect timing. If, if, if my timing had been 2004 or 1984 instead of 1994, right. it would have been a completely different, um, relationship with my career. And, um, and I also wrote a song called when I was a boy, when gender as an issue was mm. simmering under the surface. And I didn't know that, you know? Mm. And so, so I was able to do my thing, you know? But as I say to like students, if, if, my father a podiatrist, and I wrote all my songs about feet, and <laughs> and they were brilliant. You know, yeah. they were really cool for what they were. Yeah, I still wouldn't have my audience that I have. I mean, some of this, just sort of, um, you know, some of this is determined by the, the eras in which we live. Mm. And there's a lot of genius out there that I think doesn't find the light. Of yeah, being. and that's
0: that is definitely one of those lonely facts about. I think, creating art in your own time where you you know that so much music and all, you know, writing sometimes will, will disappear, you know?
2: Oh, it, yeah. And, and <laughs>
0: it'll be gone, you right. know? And if uh, enough people don't get behind it or something doesn't go your way,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you can't survive economically right. and you have to start doing something else. I think there's <laughs> right. a lot of bands in my sort of, uh, circle right now where, you know, people are veering into their late thirties, you mm-hmm. know, and realizing like, well, if I'm going to have a family, I guess I have to do it now. Yeah. Uh, I'm barely kind of getting by living in a awesome city where the rent is insane mm-hmm. and people seem to respect my work, but what does that mean right now? Economically, people don't really buy stuff right
2: now oh it's a it's a no so actually i yeah, you yeah know, no it's and, and the collapse of the it's music it's not enough is, yeah you know and you know that your your recorded music used to pay for your touring right and your touring was what kind of elevated the next step of your career and then you know you'd kind of ditch the bus and go out with the van and kind yeah. of go more low low scale for the non-album tour stuff yeah. I and mean, there was a whole equation to it and even before the collapse of the music industry as we know it I remember speaking at Smith College and saying, okay, everyone, this is what I think. This is what works for me. There's this thing called numbers Mm -hmm. your weight, your height, your age, your billboard status, your audience size, how many albums you're selling. They're all toxic because they can be extremely comparative, and you can get really hung up on that. You know, your sense of value based on those numbers. I said, there's just one number that I think is really. Cool, and Mm -hmm. you can just go ahead and and get all nitty gritty and granular with it, and that's money. And all of these college students were like, money. But if you love what you do, the money. I was like, stop, just stop. Yeah. (laughs) Figure out really what you need to spend, and if you you know if you want to have sushi once a week, or if you want to live in a certain place, or have a certain kind of car, you know, just figure out what that number might be,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and say, is my music making that number, or is it not making that number? And if it's not, then figure out what you can do so that you can do as much music as you can mm-hmm. and do as little work as you can, can pull it off yeah. But to get that number. But you don't have to make music be that number. Yeah. And so many young women came up to me you know, with that really privileged background saying, you know, there's this whole kind of guilt-inducing, mm-hmm. shame-inducing thing that if you're passionate enough, if you care enough, then the money will come. But again, if you're writing songs about podiatry or you're writing songs about orthodonture or or whatever, then it's not going to bring in the money. But that doesn't mean that you're not creating something artistic and fulfilling. You just have to divorce it from the the number, you know, Um, at the same time. It's so great if you can do music full time because it really is a full time. Yeah. You know. It, it takes up your whole mind.
0: Well, I I have often miss working like almost a dead end job in some ways. <laughs> I,
2: know. I mean, I worked at a bookstore and I had that, and I worked at a nursery, a uh, plant nursery, and I had some of the similar things. And I learned a lot about the world sort of behind the cash register or stacking books, and and um, and I knew what the job was, and I knew when it began and ended. And there's a lot of uh, stuff leaking and evaporating all over the yeah. place when you're not sure what the goal is and you're not sure where the song is going to be and <laughs> it's different. It's uh, and uh, and sometimes I'm yeah I I'm like be careful what you wish for, kids. <laughs> yeah, because it's really amorphous. I mean, there's a lot of nebula it's, to the
0: career, and it it's humiliating. I think when you have fully jumped into that world of being a full-time touring musician, and then you realize years in, it's actually still not enough, you yeah. know? Or, like, you realize that, like, oh, like, four years ago, I was doing really well then. Right. Remember that?
2: <laughs> well, you know, the music business, what was interesting is that things fell apart, and people said, like, when things first fell apart around 2004, 5, 6... Um, I remember walking into a Starbucks where they used to have Hear Music compilations. And yeah. it was like, if you like Nora Jones, maybe you'll like Dar Williams. If yeah. you Or if you like Sheryl Crow, maybe you'll like Nora Jones. Like It provided a lot of yeah. stepping stones for people. And in 2005, somebody said, you know, what's going on in the music business will affect you. Mm. And I was like, no, no, it won't, because my audience is so cool. <laughs> and yeah. they're always going to buy CDs and everything's going to work out. And I walked into um, a Starbucks, and it was just wall-to-wall Bob Dylan's new album. Mm-hmm. And the whole model of the music industry became, like, we used to have $20 million. We had 20 AR and guys with little ponytails who would go out and spend a million dollars on 20 acts and yeah. 20 bands. And then it was suddenly, like, all Bob Dylan. It's like, you liked him before, you like him now. That's our, that's our marketing plan. Yeah. And yet journalists would say to me, like, no, no. If you love it, you can still figure it. The money's there. It's just you haven't figured it out yet. It's just a new normal. And I was like, no, no, that's not. I, m- I just lost 40% of my income overnight. It just changed. Was it that quickly? Uh, pretty much. Mm. Two th- um, I sold, okay, let's say X amount in um, 2003 of Beauty of the Rain half of that in um, for my better self in the next album, half of that for promised land, half of that, literally half each time. And so, um, and I was talking to Peter Yarrow, you know, who does, Peter, Paul and Mary, who does still have that. And I said, you know, 2005, my better self sold. And he goes, well, was it a bad album? And I was like, (laughs) it might've been, you know, but when we started, when artists started to say, it's not me, Mm. it's, there's something going on yeah. that's bigger. There's a force that's bigger in us. And then we started to collaborate together mm-hmm. and not take it so personally that we weren't making the same amount of money mm-hmm. and that we had to diversify and that we had to support each other and do things for free. And then we loosened up a lot. When I took the collapse of the music industry personally, that was a pretty uptight two years. <laughs> and then when I thought, no, this really isn't... Um, this is, this is this is bigger than me. This is a movement. This is a new thing. Yeah. Um, everything changed. Like I things, and then I f- found my footing in different ways. And I, you know, I toured more, and then that was okay. Um, and toured differently. And the people who suffered were producers and engineers and side people because I just, you know, lost a couple of side people here and there, and didn't have tour buses anymore. I just had vans, and and that was fine I kind of didn't miss the tour bus I don't know if you love tour buses but
0: <laughs> haven't haven't been on one really they're kind of um I like a good minivan it yeah a minivan is a great thing it's it's streamlined it also feels wasteful a lot of it's times. so
2: wasteful like tour buses, buses and I'm I'm so obsessed with the environment and so that was a thing so it was it was um you know it was time but that said um yeah I had to change my my brain, my life, my music, my everything, when it all fell apart. And then when I realized that that was what happened to my friends, you know, Jill Sabule and Jonathan and Ani, and you know, mm. it was all of us together and we found that kind of brethren feel mm. to it. And we, we didn't judge ourselves so much about the financial part. Um, there was a really nice feel to that. And this journalist was like, it's almost like that was a good thing. I was like, no, 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 it was not a good <laughs> <Yeah>. thing. <laughs>
0: I would like to have that half back <laughs> exactly. of the album sales. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> and I was like, S- yeah, stop romanticizing this career, dude. Like, yeah. no, it wasn't cool because this is what puts food on the table." Yeah. So, um, but at the same time, I understand that you know, keeping the dreaminess and the dream yeah. and the excitement of creating songs on stages is is you know something
0: to hold on to. Well, if I counted correctly, you've put out eleven albums. Does that make sense? Starting with uh, *Mortal City* in nineteen
2: ninety-six. I did. I have one before *Mortal City* that was actually the the thing that kind of shot into the. the it, was, it was called *The Honesty Room*. That was yeah. like the big one, and then the, but *Mortal City* sold more. <laughs> um, and then, uh, no, I have nine studio albums. It's a then, live
0: record. And
2: then there's a live one. There's a compilation, and I did a thing with um, called *Cry, Cry, Cry*, which is cover songs with Richard and Lucy, and. Um, and I have a 10th one now, 10th studio, like album that I'm doing, but that, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff out there. Anything to
0: share about that new album?
2: Um, it, you know what, uh, it's got a lot of references to time. Mm. Really interesting. Somebody said every one of the songs you've played has some, you know, thing about sort of reckoning with time and the wisdom Mm. that it brings us, you know. Some of it, welcome. <laughs> and uh, so I think that that's, I usually figure out the theme of the album way after the fact. I don't know about you, but you know, like. Well, sometimes Whoa. it
0: takes a producer to kind of link those threads together.
2: Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, musically, sonically, sure. You know, I, I wrote this thing for American Songwriter about, you know, sort of the new normal, and I was like, do you, you know, do you really want to give up? Like the new normal says, figure out how to do it yourself. You know, publicize yourself and produce yourself and engineer yourself, and you've got the technology to that do it. Exhausting. It's like, do you really want, um, you know, do you want Yoko uh, running the machinery for your? Well, maybe you do actually, but you know, do you do you want to ask Ringo to to produce your albums instead of George Martin? Yeah. Like. It, I mean, if that's the choice that you're making, and well, it's so like it's, it's like
0: having a director instead of the playwright An ensemble, doing it. Right. <laughs> it's like there's a reason why a couple yeah. brains sometimes can elevate something to and producers a higher level.
2: have a certain kind of brain. I mean, they are they think the way I don't think, and I've never. I mean, the latest album I did, I sort of co-produced all the tracks with people because you know why not? It wasn't very complicated, but um, it was uh, yeah, another brain on it is a beautiful. That kind of producer brain is great.
0: There's a song that I listened to. We were, you know, napping the other day. This is not an insult. Sometimes it's nice to have calm folk songs while you're napping. Oh, I'm in. That's great, yeah. And my wife is very, like, mad when I put on high-energy songs when we're, like, just chilling. Mm -hmm. And she's like, yeah, I'm feeling this dar right now. It's great. But then... FM radio came oh, on. Whoops!
2: Yeah, that's kind
0: of yeah. And all of a sudden we w-
2: <laughs> we woke up mm-hmm.
0: and it's kind of this rocker, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, again off your your uh, release Emerald. It reminds it reminds me of that Elvis Costello song "Radio," you know, about mm-hmm. the sort of nostalgia of this time yeah. where the soundtrack to your life was playing in every room and every car, and it was sort of this beautiful unifying force. Yeah. That we were all listening to the same radio, right? Absolutely, yeah. We were all listening to the new Springsteen album or the the new Ani DeFranco album, whereas the paralysis of choice that we have right now is kind of amazing, but also Mm -hmm. everyone's listening to something completely different, and we lose a little of that unification in a way.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was so intrusive. Like, everybody knew about, you know, like... Elton John's sex life, or or everyone was speculating about his sex life, and everybody was wondering about, you know, heart, what's going on with heart, and everybody knew that Fleetwood Mac songs were all about each other, and and we all kind of got into their business, (laughs) and into each other's business. And in the 70s, it was a very... androgynous time it was a real like at the beginning Jill Buell and I wrote that together and there's mm. this whole thing at the beginning where we're basically saying like hey Mr. Lifeguard up in your big chair turn up the radio you're looking good yeah like guys would say you're looking really foxy and women yeah. would say hey you're looking really foxy like there was yeah. this kind of androgynous sex in the air Everybody's in everybody's business, dancing and singing, and <laughs>
0: I love the line when you're like, maybe Queen needs a clarinet player.
2: Right, that idea that you know you're in band and, and you're yeah. and you're you're listening to Queen, and you're like, I mean, it could happen, right? I mean, they might need a clarinet <laughs> player, and like you know, as soon as I get my braces off, uh, <laughs> talking
0: disco with Would my you? orthodontist.
2: And that was the other thing. Like there were these teachers who, um, you know, my my uh, my husband Michael, he he was talking about his. Um, a teacher saying, like one, like the chemistry teacher saying that um, an artist was derivative, Neil Young was derivative, <laughs> and then going to the other teacher and the and the, teacher, the English teacher going like, he's so full of shit. What? He's not derivative. What's wrong with, you know, yeah. Mr. Banks, the chemistry teacher? And so that kind of... Um, <laughs> Yeah. hilarious like teachers weighing in about all yeah. this stuff and like yeah Stevie Nicks she's a witch but that's cool you know like your driver ed guy listening to turning up Led Zeppelin while you're learning how to drive yeah there was that kind of thing too because it wasn't like your parents listened to Perry Como and you listened to Jimi Hendrix like everybody's yeah. listening to everything and there's this whole buy-in about you know you're talking about Saturday Night Live and you're talking about (laughs) Bruce Springsteen and and um it was kind of a an an interesting equalizer of students and kids and adults and kids and you know ultimately probably wasn't a ton of fun for the artists to feel so completely scrutinized yeah (laughs) but at least they didn't have to deal with the internet.
0: Love that story that Stevie Nicks really wanted to join Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as like their one lady member, and they were like, "We're good. <laughs> we don't we don't really have girls in our band." But
2: I'm sure you'll find something.
0: Good, good. luck. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Like what? Why she couldn't have like joined for a couple years?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and of course, yeah. That is hilarious. I had not heard that. And believe me, Jill and I went deep. Like we looked through all of the the billboard yeah. things from 77 through 80. Yeah. And we had all these stories that were so like could not put in the song cuz it's all about people's sex lives and yeah. their drugs. <laughs> their sex lives and their drugs combined. And so we had to kind of pull out the the stuff that was um Relevant, but the other thing that's in the the song is uh, are a lot of references or references to DJs and specifically um, the Nightbird, uh, Allison Steele, mm-hmm. and um, everybody. She was everybody's first crush. She came mm-hmm. on at two o'clock in the morning. She's like, "Hello, everybody. Yeah. I'm gonna read your. I'm gonna read somebody's cards. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and at the end, she's you know at six a.m. and She'd be like, "Have a beautiful day." Yeah. And all of these boys were like, "I am
0: completely in love with yeah. her." Would you like to play us a song sure. before you have your show tonight?
2: Yeah, let's... let's um, okay, so.
0: When you have been making records for 25-plus years, mm-hmm. there's a lot to choose from. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so, so this, this is just, from... Which album? This is from Promised Land. Okay.
2: And the whole record had a kind of a... It turned out, looking back, that it had a lot to do with people um, in funny, you know, at really tense times of their lives just trying to... Um, figure out what they were going to do. And, of course, those were songs that were written around the time my son was born mm. when I was just completely feeling so compromised in my decisions, like I thought I was going to be this kind of mother, and I wasn't, you know. So yeah. um, mm. this has to do with the Stanley Milgram obedience to authority mm. experiments, but it's...
0: The marshmallow test? Uh,
2: no, no, this was Would You Inflict Pain on a Stranger. Right. All right, here okay. we go. All right.
1: Didn't the number eight platter at the restaurant. for dollars 29 for almost anything I want. Add it up, it's cheaper than the stuff I make myself. I get by, I never needed anybody's help. So I tore out an ad, and they told me that I would press the buzzer. I the buzzer. At the graduate lab, they were doing some tests. I pressed the buzzer. I press the buzzer. The dog pay every bill, feeling sorry for this guy that I pressed to shock. He gets the answers wrong. I have to up the watch, so he begged me to stop. But they told me to go. I press the buzzer, I press the buzzer. So get out of my
0: Big thanks to Dar Williams for talking to me. You can go to darwilliams.com for her music and her tour dates. She'll be playing in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Austin, Texas, Houston, and other places coming up. And you know what? On the 31st of January, she's playing the Irvington Folk Festival. And I will also be there the next day. Dust Bowl Revival will be playing the Irvington Folk Festival as well, right outside New York City. I might even drag my 93-year-old grandmother. She only lives 20 minutes away. I think I might be able to convince her to come to this one. And if you head over to thebluegrasssituation.com, you'll find that there was a really cool mixtape put together in March of last year called Mother Banjo's Women Folk Playlist for Hard Times. Some of the best female singer-songwriters I've ever heard, and some I've never heard of. Sean Colvin, Dar Williams, Indigo Girls, many more. I've really discovered some wonderful music on here. Check it out at bluegrasssituation.com there's one more thing I want to tell you about this Thursday January 16th our friends Jordy Lane and Claire Reynolds they're singer-songwriters from Australia who are on this very show they are hosting a Brushfire fundraiser at the Hotel Cafe in Hollywood featuring the wonderful Jamie Drake who's on the show as well Haley Reinhardt, Estero Sam Morrow Drew Dolan and yours truly will be playing songs to raise funds for the Australian Red Cross and more please come January 16th Hotel Cafe see you there the Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupitan, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love The Show on the Road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the thebluegrasssituation.com. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lupiton. See you on the trail.